We thank you that Christ is Lord of all, that he is Lord of all, even in the storm, even in difficulty, even in trial. So God, as we learn about what that looks like tonight, learn what it looks like to navigate trials well, learn what that looks like in the life of a believer. God, I pray that you would move, that your spirit would move through your word, um, and that God we come to know you better tonight and to love you more because of it. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. How are you guys? Oh, man. Did you guys have fun at the Pond Comp? That was a blast. I, I will say, so I had my son, Grant, sitting on my lap and helping me judge, and he is a very harsh critic, all right? So you're welcome, because about half of you, he was like, let's give him a zero. And I was like, no, you little monster. Um, and so, uh, so I talked him up on some of them, but he might have taken a half point off a few of you. So uh, if you've got an issue with your score, take it up with Grant. He might bite you, though, so be careful. All right. Um, so um, this week so far, we've looked at, at Daniel and his friends being Exiled, being taken away from the, the home, everything they know and love, being put into this re-education program in Babylon where their goal is to change everything that Daniel and Hananiah and Azariah and Mishael, everything that they believe. But then what we saw last night was this first trial that came along, this trial, this, this, uh, this test for Daniel and his friends, would they follow God, or would they go with the flow and do what everyone else is doing? We saw there in, in Daniel um, chapter 1, in, in verse 8, we saw um, Daniel firmly planting himself, that he resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food. And we saw God in his mercy and his grace grant Daniel favor. He granted him favor with the, the chief official. He granted him favor with the steward who was over him. And God worked a miracle to get these guys fat off of vegetables, right? That's all God. And because of all that, it also says that, that God gave them wisdom and understanding and that Daniel and Hananiah and Mishael and Azariah, Daniel and his friends, quickly rose through the ranks of King Nebuchadnezzar's wise men, King's, King Nebuchadnezzar's counselors, the people who he would ask questions of, his advisors, Daniel and his friends quickly became some of the king's closest advisors, his most trusted confidants, because God gave them knowledge and said that they had 10 times more wisdom than any of the other youths who came out of, uh, out of Judah. And then in chapter two, something pretty crazy happens, but we're not going to spend a lot of time on it because we're going to spend most of our time in chapter three, and we'll come back to chapter two a little bit tomorrow night. So in chapter two, Nebuchadnezzar has this dream. He has this dream that he thinks is pretty significant. He doesn't think it's just like, he doesn't wake up and go, oh, that was a weird dream. No, he thinks this dream is something really significant, and so he wants all of his wise men and his counselors, all the people who he's, who he's surrounded himself with, these priests of these false gods and, and all of these people in Nebuchadnezzar's court, he wants them to interpret his dream. Tell me what my dream means. And they go, of course, king, we'll tell you what your dream means, but first you have to tell us what your dream is. Nebuchadnezzar's got a lot of faults, but he's a pretty smart guy. So he goes, no, 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 no. Because if I tell you what my dream is, 
then you're just gonna make something up so that you can sound good. So if you really understand my dream, if you can really interpret it, then you, you tell me what my dream is, and then you tell me what it means. Well, all the guys around Nebuchadnezzar, they go, we can't do that, nobody can do that. That's impossible. And so Nebuchadnezzar got a pretty short temper, and he goes, all right, every one of my wise men, every one of my counselors, you're all going to be put to death. None of you know what you're talking about. You're all faking it. If no one can tell me what my dream is and then what my dream means, then I'm gonna have you all put to death. Well, news of this comes to Daniel because Daniel's one of the guys who's going to be put to death because of this command of Nebuchadnezzar. And Daniel goes, oh, wait, give me a second. I can interpret the dream. And God gives Daniel wisdom. He gives Daniel knowledge. And Daniel goes to Nebuchadnezzar and he tells Nebuchadnezzar exactly what Nebuchadnezzar had dreamed the night before. Now, Daniel can't do that. He's a smart guy. He's not that smart. It's God who gave him that knowledge. Daniel tells Nebuchadnezzar exactly what his dream was the night before. And then Daniel goes on to explain what that dream meant. Explain what that dream meant. In Nebuchadnezzar's dream, there was this big statue, and different parts of it were made out of different materials. And from the head that was gold all the way down to the feet of clay, the materials got, got worse and worse and worse. And Daniel said, the statue is these world empires, and you, Nebuchadnezzar, you are the head of gold, but your kingdom's not going to last forever. And then moving down the statue, he said, there will be more kingdoms, more empires, and every single one of them will crumble. And Nebuchadnezzar was amazed by Daniel's ability to not only tell him what his dream meant, but also to tell him what his dream was. And he says something really significant at the end of chapter 2. So that's where we'll be picking up tonight. And Daniel chapter 2 will start in verse 46, after Daniel has interpreted the dream to Nebuchadnezzar. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face and paid homage to Daniel and commanded an offering and incense be offered up to him. And the king answered and said to Daniel, truly your God is God of gods, Lord of kings, a revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. And the king gave Daniel high honors and many great gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and the chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. So now, Daniel, this captive, this young man who's been taken away from everything that he knows and loves and forced into the thinking of this, this, uh, this kingdom of Babylon, he's just become the greatest uh, official in Babylon with the exception of Nebuchadnezzar himself. Nebuchadnezzar is busy sitting in, on the throne in the palace and eating the, the meat that Daniel had rejected and drinking the wine that Daniel had rejected. And now Daniel is the one who is over all of Babylon who is running the show. It's a pretty incredible thing. And in that, that statement, Nebuchadnezzar made an incredible statement about God, about Daniel's God, about the God of the Bible, the God of Israel. He said, your God is God of gods, Lord of kings, the revealer of mysteries. He says, Daniel's God has something to him. But did you see what he said? He said that Daniel's God, he didn't say Daniel's God is the only true God. He didn't say that Daniel's God is the creator of all things. 
He didn't say that Daniel's God is the king of the universe. No, he said, your God is God of gods. See, Nebuchadnezzar still believes in all of these different gods, Bel and Aku and all these gods that they worshiped in Babylon. But he says, but the God of Daniel, he's like the best God. He's the gaudiest God of all the gods, right? So he doesn't quite get it. He's not quite there, but he's starting to realize some of the power of Daniel's God. And then verse 49, we see this. Then Daniel made a request of the king, and he appointed Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon, but Daniel remained at the king's court. So now not only is Daniel elevated to one of the highest offices in the land, but so are his friends elevated to one of the highest offices in the whole empire of Babylon, the most powerful empire on the face of the earth. These young men who were taken away from everything, who are, who are captives, are now in this position in a significant way ruling over one of the most powerful empires on the face of the earth. But then we see something really interesting with King Nebuchadnezzar starting in chapter 3. He's just stated how powerful Daniel's God is, but the reason we know that he doesn't have a full and clear view of Daniel's God is what he does in the very next verse, in chapter three, verse one, we see this. Then King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth six cubits, and he set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. So what does Nebuchadnezzar do? After having Daniel tell him this, this uh, interpretation of his dream, after seeing the power of God firsthand, what does Nebuchadnezzar do? He goes and he builds a statue, almost 100 feet tall. He builds a statue of himself. He plates it in gold and he puts it in the middle of the field so that however far away you are from it, you can see this shining, gleaming, idolatrous image of King Nebuchadnezzar. He says, yes, Daniel, your God is God of gods, but I want the people to worship me. So he sets up this idol, this golden idol. Verse two, then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps and the prefects and the governors and the counselors and the treasurers and the justices and the magistrates and all of the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the satraps and the prefects and the governors and the counselors and the treasurers and the justices and the magistrates and all the officials of all the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before that image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And the herald proclaimed aloud, you are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn and the pipe and the lyre and the trigon and the harp and the bagpipe and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, as soon as all of the people heard the sound of the horn and the pipe and the lyre and the trigon and the harp and the bagpipe and every kind of music, all of the people the nations, the languages, fell down and worshiped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. So, Nebuchadnezzar doesn't really understand the God that Daniel and his friends worship. He says some good things about him, but he's not there. How do we know? Because the very next thing that King Nebuchadnezzar does, he builds this false idol, this image of himself, plated in gold, and he gets everybody who's anybody 
and all of the Babylonian empire to gather around. And whenever they hear music, he says, you must fall down and worship this statue of me. And when the music plays, everybody does just that. Now, we don't know exactly where Daniel is at this point. We've seen nothing but faithfulness from Daniel. It's likely that he wasn't there, but the text doesn't really mention him being there or not being there, but it does mention his friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah. It mentions them. And says that everybody who's anybody, all of the prefects, all of the governors, everybody who has any level of authority in all of the empire of Babylon, the possible exception of Daniel, maybe he's back at the palace holding down the fort, they're all there at this dedication of this idol. And when the music plays, every single one of them bows down and worships this idol. Every single one. All of the people with any power, with any authority, with any influence in the whole kingdom of Babylon, they bow down and they worship this idol of the king. All of the people except for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We see this starting in verse 8. It says, therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans, those Babylonians, Chaldeans, the same thing, came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. Who are the Jews here? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And they declared, O king Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the horn and the pipe and the lyre and the trigon and the harp and the bagpipe and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into the burning, burning fiery furnace. And there are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. So in the words there, I feel like there's a, there's a hint of jealousy, isn't there? These are Babylonians, Chaldeans. These are the ones who, who the people who are a part of this empire, who have grown up in it probably from, from these wealthy, influential families in Babylon, and here these captive kids are, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, these people from this nation that they conquered with barely even breaking a sweat, and King Nebuchadnezzar has promoted these guys up above them, and now they see their chance, because they haven't bowed down to the image of the king. And so they say, oh king, these Jews... Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they have no regard for you. They don't care for you at all. They don't worship your gods. And you said that if anyone didn't worship your gods, you would throw them into the fiery furnace. And then look at Nebuchadnezzar's reaction in verse 13. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought, and that they brought these men before the king. And Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you're ready, when you hear the sound of the horn and the pipe and the lyre and the trigon and the harp and the bagpipe and every kind of music to fall down and worship the image that I have made well and good. But 
If you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into the burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? He gives them a chance. He says, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, do it right now. Fall down and worship this golden image. And if you don't, we're going to throw you into the fiery furnace. And who can protect you then? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in verse 16, it says, They answered and said, O King Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. So just like they did in chapter two, just like just in, or in chapter one, just like Daniel did in chapter one, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego have firmly planted their feet here. They've said, we are not going to do that. We're not going to worship this false idol. We're not going to worship your false gods because we worship the God of the Bible. We worship the God who made everything, the God who is the Lord of heaven and earth. He is our God, and we're not going to bow down to your golden statue. Even if that means that we're going to be thrown into the fiery furnace, our God can protect us from that. But even if he doesn't, we will still not bow down to your golden statue. Why? Because your golden statue is not God, and our God is. And then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury. Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury, and the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He's not smiling anymore. And he ordered that the furnace be heated seven times more than it was usually heated. This is interesting because I think it shows us just how angry Nebuchadnezzar is. If Nebuchadnezzar really wanted them to suffer, he really wanted them to have pain and he was thinking clearly, he would have turned the furnace down so they would cook a little bit slower. But what does he do? He makes it seven times hotter because he wants to see these guys burn. So he has it heated seven times hotter. The furnace is going. And then we see this. He ordered some of the mighty men of his army, possibly his his bodyguards here. He ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the fiery furnace. These men were bound in their cloaks and their tunics and their hats and their other garments, and they were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace. And because the king's order was urgent that the furnace over, that, and the furnace overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the fiery furnace. So, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, three men who were standing firm in what they knew to be right and good and true. They said, no matter what, we are going to do the right thing. We are going to follow God. We are going to worship him. We are not going to defile ourselves. Just like Daniel and these three guys said back in chapter one, they're saying it again. No matter what happens, we will not bow down and worship this golden image. And because of their faithfulness, 
because of their faithfulness in God, because they refused to give in, because they refused to capitulate, because they refused to do what was being asked of them, because it was sinful, because of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's faithfulness, they faced an incredible trial, an incredible difficulty. See, they didn't know what was going to happen in that fiery furnace. They didn't know what was going to happen. They didn't know whether they were going to be burned up like the guards or whether God was going to work some kind of miracle. It says it right there in their words in in verse 18 where it says, but if not, our God can deliver us. But if not, we still won't bow down. But if not, means that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego know that there is a good chance that they're thrown into that fiery furnace and they will burn up in it. Not because God can't save them, but because God hasn't told them, I will always save you from fiery furnaces. God hasn't made that promise. See, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they know that trials, difficulties, pain, suffering, that in this life, on this earth, those things are guaranteed. Trials and difficulties and pains and hardships and sufferings, that's what describes life in this world. And following God, serving him, worshiping him, that doesn't take those hardships away. There are a lot of people out there, a lot of pastors out there, uh, people who call themselves pastors at least, who will tell you that if you follow Jesus, if you put your faith in God, then you'll never have any difficulties, trials, pains, hardships, that what God wants to give you in this life is health and wealth and prosperity. He wants you to be happy and healthy and rich. And if you follow God, that that's the life you're signing up for. If you serve Jesus, then you're signing up for a life free from pain, free from trial, free from hardship, free from difficulty, free from loss. But that's not what the Bible teaches at all. The Bible teaches us that trials, difficulties, hardships, that they're not only likely, that they're promised. They are promised to us. In in 1 Peter Chapter four, verse 12, it says this, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Don't be surprised when difficulty comes up in your life. Don't be surprised when you face pain and hardship and suffering and trial and loss. Don't be surprised when the fiery trial comes up. That's normal. That's what life is. And God hasn't promised in this life to take away pain and suffering. In fact, Jesus made the exact opposite promise. In John chapter 16, Jesus said this. He said, in this world, you will face hardship. In this world, you will face trials. Guys, life in this world is marked by hardship. It's marked by trial. It's marked by difficulty. It's marked by pain. And it's marked by suffering. And following God holds no promise that we won't face those things in this life. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they knew that. 
they understood that. They weren't standing their ground and refusing to worship this idol because they thought that by not worshiping this idol, God would give them some greater amount of riches. They weren't saying, I'm not gonna worship that idol because if I don't worship that idol, then the real God, he's gonna make my life even more comfortable and cushy than it is now. No. They knew that by not worshiping that idol, there was every chance that the result of it would be them burning in the fiery pit, the fiery furnace. They knew that that was the likely outcome. But trials are a part of this life, and they were not willing to compromise their worship to the real God of everything and everyone in order to try to avoid a trial. They knew that trials are a part of this life. We see this throughout the Bible. The Bible is filled with stories of righteous people who have difficult lives. And often their lives are made much harder by their righteousness. They're made much harder, much more difficult by them following God. Many of you probably know the story of Job, right? That's the famous example of this. Job, this this book in the Old Testament, tells the story of this man who is only ever described as righteous. Job was a man who loved God and loved his word, loved his commandments. Job did everything to please God and to worship God. But God allowed everything to be taken away from Job. Job lost his wealth. He lost every penny that belonged to him. He lost his family. He lost his health. He lost absolutely everything. And he lost it because of his righteousness. We also see a guy named Paul in the Bible. Paul's a guy who has everything going for him. He has absolutely everything going for him. He went to the best schools. He came from the best family. He had all of this self-made righteousness. And then he started following Jesus. And when Paul started following Jesus, his life went from being this very promising young Pharisee to being a guy who spent his entire life with some kind of of physical handicap, some kind of, of pain that never left him. He was constantly beaten, constantly under threat of death. He was shipwrecked multiple times. He was bitten by snakes. It is a ridiculous list of things that Paul went through in his life because of the fact that he followed Jesus. But in, in Paul's story, as well as in Job's story, as well as in the story of Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego, we don't see stories of people who came to follow God and then their lives got easier. We see stories of people whose lives on this earth were made more difficult by their commitment to following God. But we see in those stories that they were faithful and that God was faithful to them. And we see that even though they had incredible trials, they were able to overcome those trials because they were looking beyond those trials to something more. We see this in scripture, but we also see it today. I think of of even even my own life, and I'm not gonna stand up here and say that, that my life is anything like Job's or Paul's or Daniel's or Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's. I, I, I haven't faced trials like that. I've never been thrown into a fiery furnace. I've never been bitten by a snake, never been shipwrecked. I've, I've never been 
under threat of death for my faith, none of that. But I have faced trials. I've been following God my whole life and, and I can still look back and I can see times when I went through difficulty or pain or loss where I've lost loved ones, where, where I've had sicknesses my, my, myself or in my family, where, where I've had relationship issues with friends or um, difficulties in, in family relationships. I can look at all of those things and I can see that my life since I've been following Christ when I was a kid, it's not been free from trial. I think of specifically when I went to seminary. If you don't know what seminary is, that's basically pastor school, right? And so, so I had graduated college, and, and I, my wife and I, we had very little at that point. We, we sold everything we had, and by that I mean we sold everything that was worth selling, and we kept all the rest that was junk. And... Uh, and we saved up as much money as we could, and we moved down to the L.A. area. I'm, I'm from Bakersfield. We moved down to L.A. in order to, uh, to go to seminary, for me to get trained for pastoral ministry, because I knew that's what, what God wanted me to do with my life. I, I knew that's the direction God was calling me and leading me, and I, I wanted to get trained in order to do ministry well, in order to handle God's word well. And we moved down on faith. We didn't know how it was all going to work out. We didn't have any jobs lined up, but I knew that school started in August, so we had to get down there in August so I could start learning how to pastor. And we got down there, and immediately my wife and I started looking for jobs. We didn't find any jobs in August. We didn't find any jobs in September. We didn't find any jobs in October. And by November, we were basically done with our savings. There was no, almost nothing left in the bank. And I remember sitting there one night in our tiny little studio apartment. It's like the size of my bedroom now. And that was everything we had in that one bedroom. We literally had a, a, a bed that was in a drawer that would like pull out from the wall. And uh, it went underneath our kitchen counter so we could have a living room when we were awake. And, and, and I remember sitting there and looking at our bank account and going, we have nothing left. We had started getting our food from the, the food pantry, and um, we, we didn't know how, how this was going to work. And I had grown up my whole life in the church, and hearing these stories about people who go, I stepped out on faith, and, and we didn't know how we were going to make ends meet. And then all of a sudden, I went to the mailbox, and there was a check in the mailbox for the exact amount of all of our bills. And, and I kept waiting for that check to come. I kept going, I'm, I'm here, I'm being faithful, I'm doing what God has told me to do, I, I believe that I'm in the will of God, that I'm pursuing God. I'm out here pursuing ministry. We left everything we knew and every, everyone we knew, and, and we did all this to come down here to pursue training and ministry so that God can be glorified. I've done my part. Now, God, you do you part, your part. You're supposed to take care of me. You're supposed to provide. You're supposed to make sure that I don't get hungry. You're supposed to make sure that I can pay rent. That's what I thought. And I remember praying and going, what, what's... What's happening here? Why is this trial coming to me? Because even though I knew the truth at some level, I thought that God had promised me an easy life. I thought that he had promised me a comfortable life. I thought that he had promised me a life that was free from trial or pain or difficulty or suffering. I thought that if I stepped out on faith and I did what he had asked me to do, then I'd have a nice cushy place to live and I'd always have food on the table. I might not have an abundance, but I would always have just, just enough. Well, God did eventually provide something, but it wasn't before making me sweat. We did eventually 
get part-time jobs and we squeaked by and we, we made it through. But I, I, as I look back on that time, I, I just remember it's the first time in my life where I ever had to wonder where my next meal was coming from, where I ever had to wonder how long I was going to be able to live in the place I was living, how, I, how was I going to be able to pay rent. I ever had to wonder through those things. I think through that time, God taught me that we're not promised a life that's free from trial or difficulty or pain or suffering. We're promised just the opposite. God doesn't promise to keep us from hardship, but he does promise us that we can engage with hardship, we can walk through trials differently than the rest of the world. We don't encounter trials less than the rest of the world, but we encounter them differently. So how is it that we as believers, those of us who know Christ, encounter trials differently than the rest of the world? Well, the first thing is this. When we encounter trials, we encounter them with joy. We encounter them with joy. That might sound crazy, but let me read it to you out of the book of James. James says this in chapter 1. He says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So James doesn't just say, hey, trials are going to come and you're going to make it through it. Just put your head down and just power through. No, no, he says, when trials come, you count it all joy. And why do you count it joy? Because you know if you are in Christ, if you are a believer, if your faith and trust is in him, then you know that those trials will serve to make your faith grow. That as you go through those trials and those difficulties and those hardships and those pains and those losses, you can approach them with joy because you know that your pain is for a purpose. You know that God will use it to grow you more and more like Christ. And not only do we encounter trials with joy, but we encounter trials with hope. We encounter them with hope. In Romans Romans chapter 8, verse 18. It says this. I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. That's Paul talking. Remember that guy who I told you had everything going for him, started following Jesus, and his life completely fell apart? He says this. I consider that the trials, the difficulties, the pains, the hardships, the sufferings, all of the, the bad stuff in this life, it's not worth comparing to what? To the hope that is set before us, the glory of Christ. All of the bad that happens in this life isn't worth comparing to the incredible, immeasurable good that is set before us after this life. That everything this world can take away from us, it's not worth comparing. It doesn't even hold a candle to what we have been given after this life. Because what we've been given is eternity in heaven with Christ. 
So we have joy because we know that our pain has a purpose, and we have hope because we know that our pain is temporary, that this world with all of its hardships and its trials and its sufferings and its pains, all of that is temporary. And what is set before us is eternal, everlasting joy. And that should give us a great hope. We don't encounter trials less, but we encounter them differently because God has a plan and because our pain has a purpose. We see this also in Romans chapter 8, verse 28, where it says, we know that God works all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. For those who he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son that all of our pain, all of our difficulty, all of our suffering, all things are worked together for the good of God's people in order that we might be conformed to the image of his son, that we might be made more and more like Jesus. Here's what this comes down to. Whether you know Jesus or you don't, whether you're a believer or you're not, whether you follow Christ or you follow this world, your life in this world will be marked by trials, by pains, and by sufferings. That's a fact of life. But if you know Jesus, if your faith and your hope is in him, then when you face hardship and difficulty and pain and trial and loss, you know that all of that is in the control of a mighty and sovereign and loving God. You know that all of that has a purpose, even when you can't see what that purpose could possibly be. You know that it has a purpose. You know that it will make you more like Christ. And you know that whatever that pain is, it is temporary. And what is set before you is an eternal joy. But if you don't know Christ, then that pain is unbearable. Why? Because for you, the only thing you can think of is that that pain must be pointless. And that pain feels like it lasts forever because what's beyond it? Guys, following Christ, following God doesn't promise a life free of pain, but it promises a life that is filled with purpose. And so we can overcome whatever trials the world may throw at us because our hope is in Christ. Our hope is in his presence. I didn't finish the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, did I? Because these three men were thrown into the fiery furnace, bound up, tied up, but then once they get into that fiery trial, something happens. Something changes. See, God didn't keep them from going through the trial, did he? God didn't keep them from being thrown into the fiery furnace, but God changed what happened in the midst of that trial. Look at this. Starting in verse 21. Sorry, we'll go to verse 23. These three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the fiery furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished, and he rose up with haste, and he declared to his counselors, did we not cast three men bound into the fire? 
And they answered to the king and said, true, O king. And he answered, but I see four men unbound and walking in the midst of the fire and they're not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. And then Nebuchadnezzar came near the door of the burning fiery furnace and he declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the most high God, come out and come here. And then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire. And the satraps and the prefects and the governors and the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not any power over the bodies of those men and the hair of their heads was not singed and their cloaks were not harmed and there was no smell of fire upon them. And Nebuchadnezzar answered, blessed be the God of Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego who has sent his angel and has delivered his servants who trusted him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego gave up their bodies. They sacrificed everything rather than worshiping a god other than their own. And God did not keep them from trial, but he was with them in the midst of the trial. He was present with them in the midst of the trial and they were able to walk through that trial in the fiery furnace in a way that was completely unlike anyone else. And when they came out on the other side, unsinged by the fire, their clothes not even smelling of smoke, what happened? Everybody said, look at the power of the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Look at the power of the God that these men worship because as they went through that trial, they were unsinged by it. That trial that would have destroyed anyone else did not destroy Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Why? Because their God is great. Their God is mighty. Guys, in this life, you're gonna face pain and trials and suffering and following God will not change the fact that you will face pain, but... He promises to be with you in the midst of the trial. And if we walk through trials with Christ, if we walk through trials with our eyes firmly fixed on him, knowing that we have hope beyond the trial and knowing that he has a plan in the midst of the trial, if we walk through the trial with joy, then when we come out on the other side of that trial, unsinged by the flames, People will look at us and they'll look at our lives and they'll say, your God is great. Just like they did for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You will face trials. The question is, how will you face them? Will you face them trusting in the plan, the purpose, the promises of God? Or will you face them in a way that is hopeless like the rest of the world? Let's pray. Dear God, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you that that though this world is filled with trials and sufferings, hardships and pains, Father, that because of who you are and because of what you've done, we can walk through those things with joy. We can walk through them because we have a hope that is laid up in heaven, the hope of eternity with Christ, eternity with you. God, I pray for the kids in this room who have put their faith and trust in you. I pray that they would see that because of who you are and because of what you've done, they can have joy in trials, joy in suffering, joy in pain, 
knowing that you are using it to make them more like you, more like Christ, and knowing that it is only temporary, but their joy in you will last forever. And Father, for those who are in this room who have not put their faith and trust in you, God, I pray that you would use this reality, the reality of of trials and suffering to, to drive them to the foot of the cross. God, that they would realize that they need that hope, the hope that we have in Christ, that, that they need that joy, the joy of knowing that you have a purpose and a plan and you are working all things together for their good. Father, we love you in Jesus' name. Amen.